Let's open up to the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What a proclamation. This is a proclamation that should provoke us to praise God. When we read it, our first reaction should not be, well, not everybody agrees with this. Our first reaction should not be, is it okay to believe this? Is it okay to establish our lives upon this truth? We shouldn't immediately go to this fact that there are certainly critics of the whole idea of God, creator God. Instead, we should allow the truth to cause us to praise the Lord, for us to say, glory to God for his handiwork, for he is a mighty creator. When we look around us, we cannot help but see what he has done. And this very first verse of the Bible should first provoke us to praise. God made the skies that we see with our eyes, and he made what we can't even see with our eyes that's so far beyond. He created matter at the molecular level, and yet he created the grand mountains that we stand in awe of. He is indeed a mighty creator God. I'm a sucker for the big mountains. Each of us have something or probably multiple things that when we look at it in its majesty, in its design, in its intricacy, it really gets to you. When I'm up hunting in the mountains, sometimes I don't see things because I'm just looking at the mountains saying, wow, Lord, this is amazing. I'm standing there at the foot of Half Dome. Last year, I got to hike up to the Ptarmigan Wall in, in Montana, and it is just invoking in me, look at what God has done. Look at how powerful he is. Look at how little I am in compared to him, and he fashioned all of this for me. That Trail Ridge Road, if you've ever been to Rocky Mountain National Park, you're up there below, above the tree line, 11,000, 12,000 feet, looking out at mountains that are 13 and 14,000 feet high. And you say to the Lord, all of this is because of you. Lord, we worship you as our creator. Sadly to say, up there on those peaks, Rocky Mountain National Park, above the tree line, the wind is usually just whipping. It, it, it feels like, and it probably could just push you right over if you're not careful. There's a lot of other people in that space that are also in awe, and they're just saying, look at this. The cameras are out, and they're, they're in awe, but they're not necessarily in awe of the creator, but they are in awe of the creation. And I do call it creation, not just nature, because it's supernatural, not just natural. Lift up your eyes and see this truth. My mom shared this with me years ago about my dad when he was suffering with cancer and going through radiation treatment. They made a trip up to Tahoe just because they wanted to try to be normal. You know, normal people go some places sometimes to take a break, so they headed up to Tahoe, and it was a hard trip because he didn't, he didn't do well. He was, he was struggling physically because of the treatment, because of, because of his disease. But on the way back, he was just looking at the mountains. You, you know some of those views up there. It's, sometimes you just need to pull over Vista Point. They were driving down the road, and, and, and my dad's rolled his window down. His, his voice ended up 
leaving him because that's where the cancer was. But even in that time of living in this fallen, sin-sick world, the Lord spoke to him and said, look, his, his handle on the CB radio was mountain mover. <laughs> the Lord's the real mountain mover, but he loved the mountains. When we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Are we so focused on the geology and the biology and the botany and the anatomy and the physics and the mathematics and studying all the theories that we fail to give God glory for what an amazing God he is. In the beginning, beginning is reshit. That's the Hebrew word. We have that prepositional phrase, the object of the preposition being beginning. Now our word Genesis comes not from the Greek, but from the Hebrew. That's the Septuagint. They took the, the Hebrew scriptures and translated them into the Greek. So we have the Genesis. And what does this word reshit mean? What, it, what does Genesis mean, the word that we get from? It is the beginning of all things. It might be even put this way, the starting point of our time continuum. We know time. We live in time. And this is the word of the Lord saying to us, this is what came first in the scope of time. God lives outside of time, but this is the choicest. Rashid even means that. This is the best. This is the starting point of the heavens and the earth, the Genesis. Rashid Elohim. That's the word for God listed here. And that's a, grammatically, it's a plural word. And this is interesting to me as I look at Elohim and how many times the name of God is mentioned here. Not singular, but plural. But then I look at the verbs in this chapter and I look at the pronouns in this chapter and we have a mixture of both plural and singular verbs and plural and singular pronouns. What's the answer to this? And I know you're thinking, can't we have a scientist instead of a... English major do this for us, but you know subject and verb agreement. You hear it when it's wrong. So if you just said, Eddie like ice cream, that's not right. You know something's up, right? You're supposed to say, Eddie likes ice cream. Eddie, the subject and the verb, they agree now, but you could say, Eddie and Michelle like ice cream, and all of a sudden, it, you have subject and verb agreement. We don't have that here. Is it that the writer, is it Moses isn't good at grammar? No, it's that theology is more important than grammar. And the Lord is speaking through his word that he is indeed a triune God. You will see it here in the very first chapter that he speaks of Elohim and at times the pronoun will be he and at other times the pronoun will be our. Let us make man in our image, plural pronoun. The Lord is talking to us. He's telling us about who he is. We also get the word of God in this very chapter because we see God the Father speaking the word in creation and who is the word of God? Jesus is, Revelation 19, 13. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. There is God the Father. There is Jesus in creation. And then we will read on and we will hear that the spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. That word literally means that the Spirit of God fluttered or shimmered over the face of the waters. I'm just trying to envision that. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the triune God, creating 
the heavens and the earth. The word created is bara. And yes, it does mean created, but it means to create, create out of nothing. Can you create out of nothing? We can't create out of nothing. We can't make matter out of nothing. Only God can do that. Even when you say, I made dinner. Okay, you may have cut that zucchini and seasoned and grilled that zucchini. I just picked this so you wouldn't be hungry. But you didn't actually, you didn't actually make the zucchini. You didn't make the plant. You, didn't, you can't make the seed that made the zucchini. God had to do that. You could say, I built that house. But you didn't make the lumber. You assembled the house, right? You didn't make the seed that caused the tree to grow. Maybe you milled the lumber. Even then, that's a big task. But you didn't cr literally create. This bara means to create from nothing. That's what God did. That's creative. Our, our idea of creative is we, we take what we've got and we arrange it, and, and we do come up with ideas, but look at the Lord. He's just not that limited. So the eternal, all-powerful God created something out of nothing. That's supernatural. It's beyond comprehension, isn't it? Look there in your Bible. God has always been, he always will be, and that's beyond what we are able to understand. He lives outside of time, too much for my brain. I admit it. Any mere human should admit that. But do you know what else is too much for our brains? Do you know what else is even farther from comprehension? That everything came from nothing on its own. Where did the original matter come from for our universe? There isn't a natural explanation for that. It is more reasonable to believe that there is an intelligent designer than there is to believe that everything came from nothing. You see, there is an element of the supernatural at the beginning, no matter what. Sometimes we believe the narrative that says this. You either believe by faith in the supernatural or you believe in facts which back up the natural. But the truth is, is that everybody has to come to terms with the supernatural because there isn't a natural explanation for how matter came to be, how energy came to be. That is supernatural. So we either believe that nothing created or did something with the supernatural or that God, that an almighty being, did the supernatural. The foundation for faith in God is something that's just going to continue to pile up if you'll study Genesis with us. Will you trust that God did something great or will you trust that nothing did something great? Because this universe truthfully is great. Divine, supernatural design. God, he is divine. Supernatural. The supernatural does exist. It just means it's beyond our comprehension. It's beyond our ability to explain or to calculate. And God was the one who performed the supernatural act of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If any person will accept this truth, it will drastically affect their view of who they are in the world around them. 
this single statement. We need the, 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 total, the totality of the word of God. Yet this statement, so much hangs upon it. And most importantly, if you will accept this statement, it will drastically change the way you view God himself, the way you relate to him. Whether you worship him or, or you don't worship him, your perspective of God, your worldview has a lot to do with whether you believe that God created the heavens and the earth. Your understanding of the universe either flows through this verse or attempts to flow around this verse. In the beginning, in my mind, I often go back to the beginning. When we're studying our Bibles and something comes up that doesn't make sense to my natural mind, and we read of supernatural occurrences, I go back to the beginning and I realize that God is orchestrating. He designed it, therefore it's under his dominion. He created it, therefore he has control. He created it, therefore he cares. He fashioned it, therefore he intervenes. Does your understanding of the universe start with God? Is that the genesis of your understanding, creator God? As we study through and as I attempt to teach through the book of Genesis, some would say, well, either, either this is going to be for people that already believe in God and that he is the creator, or it's going to be for people that don't believe that God is a creator. But the reality is, is that many, many people do believe there's a God, but they just have so many questions that they're paralyzed as far as stepping forward and actually giving their life over to God. I like to ask people, do you just believe there, do you believe there's a God? And it's amazing how many people, the media would love you to believe that there are a lot of people who are atheists. But actually, there are, most people believe there is a God. They just have so many questions that they, they aren't willing to submit their life to who God is and what he has done for them. So let's address our doubts do you have doubts about God? I do. Is that too piercing for us to admit? That doubts come into our lives? What do we do when our, our flesh thinks that way, when the enemy tries to get us to think off course? We're supposed to come back to the truth of God's word, and he anchors us in faith and chases away our doubts. The truth is, is every time we study the Bible, we're dealing with our doubts to some extent. The Lord is affirming that which is true, and he is teaching us to not be duped and just see things in the mere physical because we're so much more than that. As we say God created the heavens and the earth, in the beginning he did that, there are those who say, well, starting with creator God, that's a bias. Well, isn't it also true that starting with there is no God is also a bias then? Or starting with the idea that God is real but doesn't care, isn't that also a bias? Bias comes with the idea that the perspective is skewed. So let's do it this way in order to reason our way through it. Let's call it a premise. I have entertained and I have researched the premise that there is no God. I have. And after much deliberation, I have concluded that nothing 
could be further from the truth. Are you willing, and maybe this is you today, to entertain and even research the premise that there is a God? Are you willing to question your infallibility? Benjamin Franklin was a fascinating man, a scientist, an inventor, a statesman, a philosopher, just a really well-rounded guy, super smart guy. People say, oh, he was a government person, well-rounded. They took that the wrong way. They just were like, he was a renaissance man. I know my children. <laughs> he was a little portly. They, 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 they called him the old, you know, septuagenarian, septuagenarian, yeah. So he's, he's there at the Constitutional Convention, and, you know, when you look at his scientific interest and how every time he'd cross the Atlantic, he was charting the currents within the ocean. When you think about his discovery of electricity, when you look at his inventions, the guy really was super intelligent, this amazing guy. But he gives this speech right before the delegates vote on the constitutional, whether they're going to ratify the constitution or not, get rid of the Articles of Confederation. And, and, and he says, I'm asking you to doubt your own infallibility, to say, Maybe there's something that I don't know. And whatever doubts you might have about this form of government, don't make it so all of it has to fit into your understanding. Ratify it because you know that much of what we've talked about is indeed good and admit that you could be wrong. <clears throat> That's what we're doing, right? What percentage of the knowledge in the universe do you think you possess? What... what I'm not insulting you. I'm just asking you for a percentage. Like, when I think about that question, I used to think, <clears throat> oh, I'm a, I'm a historian. I, I know so little about history. I mean, that's supposed to be my area of emphasis, and I'm like, cultures, civilizations, languages, and all that. Like, if you had to put a percentage just on, on what amount, there's all the knowledge in the universe, what percentage of it do you possess, do you know? And man, I had one person tell me this week, and it was in Grass Valley, so you never know what you're going to get up there. It, it was five, they said they thought 5%. And I was like, whoa! There's no way I'm saying one. I'm into the point, you know, I know I'm in the negative. So what are the chances, if, even if you're that 5%er, you, know, you have 5% of the knowledge in the universe in your brain, what are the chances that God could possibly exist in the other 95%? There's some pretty high chances there, aren't they? There's some high chances. So the Lord, here he is. I might talk about bias, but you look at this. We must come to a conclusion. We must be willing to research it. We must be able to reason through it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the divine, supernatural designer. So speaking first about God, then about the supernatural, because the supernatural there's just things we can't explain. There's a lot of things we can't explain. Now we get to the designer. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were 
the first day. And the word does point to it being a literal day. We won't go into that at this point, but here's day one, darkness and light. Look, God made the skies. He also made the earth, but there weren't landforms yet. It says here that the earth was without form. It was void. So there weren't mountains and valleys. The water everywhere. I picture it like a swamp, yet without tulis, right? Emptiness, void. And then we get the first explanation about how God created. Check it out. It says that he spoke. He created through the spoken word. It literally means that he spoke things into existence. He said, let there be light, and then there was light. That's a lot of power. I say it, it happens. I say it, it comes into existence. And then look, God immediately begins to organize. He's so orderly. He separates the light from the darkness, calling the darkness night, calling the light day. I notice right away that night and day are not dependent upon the sun and the moon. We only know of day because the sun is what we associate with, with all natural light. I mean, I know we get starlight, but I'm just saying most of our light comes from the sun, our, our natural light from the sun. But that was not the case at the very beginning. God himself was the source of the light. God does not need to create a source that can then create light. We know that from the word of God right here. He can do that. He's not limited in that regard. We're told in, in Revelation, it's in Revelation 22, verse 5, that in heaven there won't be any sun. The light will come from the Lord, the ultimate source of light. So really, day, by God's definition, isn't based on the sun. It's based on the light that emanates from him, maybe creating the sun and now giving us those light bearers for the day and the night. So that's day one, light and darkness. Verse six, then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament, firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. So this day too, the firmament, it's a little confusing at first glance because our atmosphere isn't designed like this anymore. So God took some of the water, because remember there's water all, all over the earth, took some of the water and he put it above the atmosphere. That word there, firmament, is translated expanse, like space, a, a, a space in the ESV and the New American Standard. So God took water and put some of it above. This is sometimes called a canopy. Maybe you've heard of the canopy theory. Really, it's not a theory. It's a reality that's stated for us in the Bible. Now, the implications of this water above the atmosphere we're making theories about those. If we had this layer of water, thick layer of water above us, how would that change our atmosphere here on the earth? Well, it would certainly protect us from the rays of the sun. As the sun comes on, there'd be this layer there. It would keep the temperature way more steady. Some of you would be very, very happy. We'd, just like, we'd have perfect temperatures all around. It wouldn't need to rain 
there would be this mist that would water the ground. So the implications of this firmament are, are theoretical. But it's interesting to me that as we get to the great flood later on in the book of Genesis, that some would say, well, it couldn't have rained for 40 days. It just would have ran out of water in their water cycle. Well, that's, and I know the fountains of the deep also gush forth when, when earth flooded, when the planet flooded. But here, all that water was already up there. And then the Lord said, let it fly. And you think it rains a lot now. Just go to Seattle and figure out that it's, it's not really a lot of rain, right? It's just kind of all relative. That's going to be a lot of rain. I see the design there, the design of God, even now. Then God said, oh, also just the whole issue of longevity of life. Now I realize that biologically, the human race was just a lot more pure. There wasn't disease from the onset, but just the protection, the reality of longevity of life because of the firmament separating the waters above from the waters below. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass and the herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. So what do we get on this day? We get dry land, we get the seas, and we get vegetation. So God starts to pile up. I'm playing in the sandbox, as you can tell from my term terminology. He starts to pile up the high spaces and make mountains and hills, and that creates low spaces, which become the seas. And then he also made all of the grasses and all of the shrubs and all of the trees, not star thistle, milkweed, and goat heads, which are my least favorite kind of weed. I don't know if you have your, we'll get to the weeds later on. But he didn't make those yet. He just made all of the good vegetation. Think about the fruit trees. They were great. These were some fruit trees beyond our imagination. And look, the word says, just as it is, the seed is right in the plant, already for the next already for the next batch. So the Lord created, notice, with the appearance of age. God didn't go out and plant acorns. Right away, there were fully mature oak trees. It's not as though pine cones. He didn't say, we make a, we're going to make a pine cone. No, he made a pine tree fully mature with the appearance of age. It was just an hour old, but you would look and your natural mind would say, that tree has been around. It's amazing when you look at trees that are hundreds and even over a thousand years old. You're like, wow. Appearance of age. Adam was never a baby, right? Grown man from the very, very beginning. Stars mature with the light as if they were old. Yet it was the very day they were made. 
Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So we get the lights of the heavens, the stars. He singles out here the sun and the moon. He set the sun at the optimal distance from the earth, giving us seasons, you know, our hemispheres, the, the setting the moon there to reflect the sun and, and give us our months. And the Lord gives it all to us here. I'm going to read to you from Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the earth. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun. The heavens declare his glory. When you look at the stars, when you look at the moon, when you look at the sun, you look at the planets, they're screaming out to you that they were indeed designed. And the more you study, even the calculations of those who do not believe in a creator God, you will realize how intricate it is. Yes, powerful, yet so great in number that we cannot even count. But you get down to the details and you'll see, if this was just a little different, it wouldn't work. The hand of design is to be seen. Yes, the power of the heavens. I think oftentimes we think of the power of the sun, the power of the stars. Yeah, but also their placement, their, their sheer size, but also just the precision that God used. I'm going to quote this from an Answers in Genesis article. Our moon does more than just reflect light at night. Most other moons orbit above their planet's equator, but our moon follows a similar path to the earth as it travels around the sun. If we didn't have such a big moon orbiting like it does, the sun and the other planets would pull the earth from its current tilt. That would make for boiling oceans in one part of the planet and freezing temperatures at another. See the divine, see God. Admit that there is a supernatural element, but also notice the design in the heavens and the earth, in the grasses and in the trees. He is indeed a God of precision. Now let's get to our final day for today. We'll go through verse 23. Then God said, let the waters abound with abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. 
So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. So we get marine life and birds. This makes the fishermen and the waterfowlers really happy. But you can't, you're not really fishing yet. Not just because Adam hasn't been created. We'll get to that. But look at each kind. He made them to multiply, did he not? Each kind of fish procreating more fish of their kind. Each type of bird procreating more birds of the same kind. Salmon don't mate with trout, right? And, and eagles don't mate with geese. God is outlining this for us. He made each kind of animal. Now, we won't necessarily use the word species here, but God is telling us that they, they recreate, they procreate after their own kind. Once again, the design of these creatures. I, I, I think sometimes that I need to go back to school because when I was doing dissections in biology, I was just like, I just got to get through this. I just got to get the grade. But now, in all these years later, would I just be that much more fascinated by the design as I was taking that animal apart? And like, look how this works. Consider this, the flying of the creatures. We couldn't figure out how to fly. It was until 1903, right? We're like tra- trying to figure out how to make ourselves fly and God just speaks it into existence, existence and the birds are flying. We can't explain. You go down thousands of feet below the ocean surface. Have you ever read about when they took that little sub down to the Mariana Trench, it just gives me claustrophobia. But figuring out how can we possibly withstand that much pressure and get that deep, God just speaks it into existence. And right away, these sea creatures are perfectly equipped for their environment. Their design provides an explanation of the designer. This is what is in the book of Job. Chapter 12, verse 7. Listen to this. Now ask the beasts, and they will teach you, and the birds of the air, and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, and the fish of the sea will explain to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? The proof of God exists in his creation. The design shows that there is indeed a designer. As the evangelist Ray Comfort has often said, you know there is a painter when you see a painting. You know there is a builder when you see a building. You were built to notice design. If I tried to convince you that even the simplicity of this this pulpit made itself, you'd say, no way. That's impossible. If I said, this shirt, it made itself. I could not get any of you to even go after that notion. Yet what is greater, the design of a bird or the design of this pulpit, the design of this shirt, or or the design of, of a tree? It's not even close. So they're speaking to us, and the Bible is saying, look at what is around you. Don't be duped. I learned a lot about science during the COVID pandemic. That science, so-called science, changes an awful lot. And we don't have a clue from day to day sometimes what the real science is. That was a term that was tossed around a lot. Well, this is the science. And we're going like, wow, it sure does keep changing. 
you know, the, and I realize we're all in there trying to navigate it. I'm not trying to be divisive or any of that. It's like, well, the quarantine was 21 days. You know what the quarantine is now? One day. The science, we're the, science, much of science, well, true science isn't agenda-driven, but much, much of the science that we hear is agenda-driven. Will we realize that? Or will we let the design speak to us of the creator? <laughs> to the, the kind and, and how God created the animals after their own kind. It makes it clear here in the scriptures. There are many reasons I, I can't believe that one kind of animal involved into another kind of animal. But one of those reasons is the lack of the so-called transitional life forms in the fossil record. I, I don't have enough faith to believe in, in these gaps. If it really did happen that way, and one kind of animal over billions and billions of years evolved into another type of animal, there would literally be thousands of fossils reflecting that evolution. And I say to the person who is a macroevolutionist, that is unbelievable to me. It's not rational. It doesn't make sense. Of course, the argument is, well, in millions and millions of years, it would be the super slow transition. Well, that means that there would be even more transitional life forms in the fossil record. Now, I know, I, I, we tried to look at it a couple weeks ago, there are those who say, well, we have dozens. Well, when you look at these supposed transitional life forms in the fossil record, the vast majority of them can be debunked quite quickly because there's this distinct possibility that's actually just an extinct species that we didn't know about or variations within a kind. But let's face the fact that there would need to be thousands and thousands of those transitional life forms, and they're just simply not there. You and I, being able to discern design, we see it. We wonder how it's built. We wonder who built it. We want to know why it works. Why are we checking in our minds and not seeing the beauty of our world and our universe in the same manner? Turn to Romans chapter 1, if you would. The Bible gives an explanation for this also, the way that people begin to think. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Did you see the end of 18 there in Romans 1? There's a pushing back of the truth because people want to live for what pleases them in the moment. The suppressing the truth. Unrighteousness is when we do the wrong thing. We think the wrong way. And the reason some truths that are clearly evident get pushed back is because our sinful desire to chase after what we want to chase after right at that time. Verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. God is showing each person inside. He's manifesting to them a truth. And here it is in verse 20. For since the creation of the world his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You and I can't see God. It says it right here. He's invisible. He has invisible attributes, but we can see them. We can sense them 
in what he has made. And this passage warns us about excuses, that instead of making excuses, we would accept. Because those excuses don't hold water anyways, that's the truth. Let's not suppress the truth, let's embrace the truth. It is the truth that will set you free. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You should consider the conclusion that there is an almighty creator God who made the heavens and the earth. But buying into that conclusion, believing that premise in and of itself will not make you right with this almighty God. You must come and make him your personal king. The Bible calls it Lord. You must come and say, I'm giving you my life. I already see that you're all powerful. I already see that you're a wonderful designer. But now I see that you love me. I know you love me because you paid the price for my sin on the cross. God Almighty came down from heaven, took on the form of a man. He allowed himself He submitted himself to the death of crucifixion to pay for our depravity, to pay for our sins. Submit to God as your Lord, not just because he's the creator. Submit to him because he is your savior. Because he's made the way for you to know eternal life. He's made the way for you to have fellowship with him, be in right relationship with him. Don't spend your time suppressing the truth, but instead say, Lord, here I am. You revealed yourself to me. There was a man who even said to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, I do believe. I'm here, but I have doubts. The Bible doesn't even say that you have to sort out all your doubts, but it does say that you have to submit. And this is the message. It's not our message. It's the message of the word of God. The simplicity of all of us are lost without the creator God, without the redeeming God, without the God who loves us. And the truth is, we don't like to surrender. We don't like to give in. We don't like to say, here's my life. You know so much better than I do. You gave your life for me to forgive me. Now I'm giving my life to you, saved by grace through faith. It is an act of faith. We admit that. But it's not an ignorant faith. There are reasons for the faith, but still it is faith indeed that you and I would proclaim that wonderful message. So many think they can be right with God by doing or calculating or having deeds or working their way to God. That's a lie. Just like the lie that we're here by chance or by accident. Accept the truth. Accept the Lord. As we worship him, this is definitely about creator, but it's also about Redeemer, that he's the one that gave his life for us. God, so many of us return to the rock-solid truth that you are indeed supernatural, that you far surpass our ability to comprehend. We also come and, and we just tell you that We're thankful for you taking the scales off of our eyes, the blinders off of our eyes. We didn't do that, Lord. You did it. We didn't find you by seeking for you. You sought after us, and you called to us. 
and we give you all the credit, Lord. And as you unveil your truth and as you show your love even more, Lord, and just consistently pour it out, I pray for the response of hearts and minds. Lord, I, I pray that there would be a confession, that they believe in their heart that, that you are indeed the Lord and that you are risen from the dead. As we rejoice in you, may there be an understanding of, of why we sing like we do and why we worship. And even though, Lord, we, we know these songs aren't, aren't perfect and we're certainly not perfect, we want to please you. So we worship you as your people, as your children, and as your creation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.